I think it's my clock is fast. I'm going to go ahead and get started. There's kind of a lot of material, so. Oh, one thing is, um, some people got all three color handouts, and other people only got one. I'm sorry about that. Here are the other two. One coming around that way. And, and they're page numbers in the lower right, so we started on page one. During this segment, we'll get to page two. Page three is not till after lunch. Oh, dang it. I need to keep a copy. <laughs> so I know, well, I guess I got that. Oh, thank you. Um, there, there, that's it? I don't know, let me look. No, that's all I have. And I have to keep, I have to keep one so I know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> all right, so <clears throat> during this segment... I want to talk about perception, sanya. Um, but just reflecting on our practice, um, you know, the, one of the central goals is to overcome our instinctive tendencies toward the three unskillful roots, greed, aversion, and delusion. And our meditation practice helps us with that in many ways. One of them is just the cultivation of calm abiding, shamatha, which strengthens the ability to pause, to not react rapidly. The hindbrain's urge to quickly deal with strong feeling situations. The, the calm abiding practice gives us greater control over that. The other element of meditation that's helpful, the, the insight element, vipassana, seeing clearly uh, the nature of our experiences the way we see things has a strong impact on how we feel about them. And so we begin to see things in a light that generates uh, a healthier Vedana. And seeing things clearly is kind of the purpose of me talking about the aggregates because I think, of the, for me at least, the neuroscience perspective on it sharpens my understanding of my experience. Uh, sanya, which refers to perception, uh, it, it, the roots of that in Pali are sam and nya. Sam means a lot of things, but one of them is thoroughly or wholly or together, integrated. And nya is, you know, Pali is an Indo-European language like English. Nya is the same meaning as no in English. It's the same root. So it, sanya is thoroughly know. Uh, it's that thing where we, we get it, we make sense of it. We see what's in front of us. We, uh, we perceive and recognize it. The aggregates are heaps. They're bundles of roughly similar things. And sanya is a particularly broad heap. There's lots of things in that, you know, from simple perceptions to complex understandings, narratives and stories. 
Um, the ordinary view of perception is that we perceive what's actually there in the world, like a video camera. We record events. The perceptions let us see what's really going on. Um, this is not the Buddhist view. And it's also not the view that emerges from neuroscience. Um, what does early Buddhism tell us about perception? Uh, well, one of the points it, that is made is can be, uh, if someone would be willing to read the Foam Sutta excerpt, it should be number two on uh, the text handout near the, the bottom third of the page where it says perception, now suppose. Anyone want to save my voice and read that for me? Now suppose that in the last month of the hot season a mirage were shimmering and a man with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in a mirage? In the same way, a monk sees, observes, and appropriately examines any perception uh, that, that is in past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near. To him, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in perception? Thank you. Yeah, so the Buddha is teaching us that our perceptions are just appearances and they lack substance. Now this does, mean that, does not mean that there's no world there at all. It's not a nihilistic view and it's a short sutta, so I'll read it myself. The next one is clarifies this point. We're not talking about nothing. We're just talking about it, the nature of perception. This is from the Kakya Anagota Sutta on right view. Everything is, this is one dead end. Everything is real. This is one dead end. Everything is not. This is another dead end. Without veering towards either of these dead ends, the Tathagata, how the Buddha refers to himself, the Tathagata teaches the Dharma by the middle. Buddhism is called the middle way. And this is one of the meanings of that. Uh, his teaching about the aggregates is that they're, in, they're really insubstantial when you examine them carefully. And it, it, perception will focus on in particular here. But that doesn't mean it's nothing. It's just not, we just add stuff to it that makes it seem like it's more than it is. We'll come back to this theme repeatedly when we talk about the aggregates. And, and how we can overcome this tendency to reify the contents of our experience. So when I talk about perception, I'm going to make three main points. One, uh, show you some ways in which perception is like a mirage, as in the sutta, uh, that it's a model. The perception is a model. 
in, it's not something in the world, although it interacts with the world. And I'll also make the point that it's very useful. The models are very useful, but they're not accurate. They, they're, that's, they're, they're not in the business of being accurate. They're in the business of being useful, evolutionarily speaking. And I'll try to convince you of that, the truth of that. Uh, and then I'll also talk about some... I mean, most of what I'll say about perception applies to all mammals and animals. But I'll talk about some uniquely human uh, capacities for perceptual processing that, uh, ha that have been a double-edged sword for human life. Um, <clears throat> so, in a mature brain, uh, an adult human... For that matter, an adolescent human um, perceptions are mostly constructed from our uh, projections and expectations that we have about the world. Our perceptions are constructed from a combination of inter external information about the world and internal information that we already have from prior experience, maps and models. And this fact is evident. Uh, both in how the brain works and what happens when it's injured, and you can see evidence that this has got to be the case. But also, if you just look at the anatomy on a cellular level. Now, uh, the handout, the color handout, the first page, page one, lower left, has a diagram. It's, 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 the title is 10 black arrows and one red arrow, that, that information. This is a diagram of the visual thalamus. So the thalamus is kind of in the middle of the brain and all the major senses, when they come from our sense organs, the first big stop inside the brain proper is, or the forebrain anyway, is the thalamus. And the vision is no exception. The optic nerve sends neurons from the retina in, in the bundled together in the optic nerve back to the thalamus. And from in the thalamus, there's some processing, and then it goes to the visual cortex, where the first cortical region for making sense of vision. And those three levels are illustrated here on the lower right, where it says sensory input. That's an, one neuron from the optic nerve coming into this thalamic nucleus. And then the red nerve going with an arrow next to it, going up to the cerebral cortex, the, that's a thalamic nerve carrying the retinal information onto the cortex. And then the black arrows coming down are a bunch of neurons coming from the visual cortex down to the thalamus. And the thing that was striking when people figured out this anatomy and what, what these cells were doing was that there are 10 times as many cells carrying information from the cortex down to the sensory thalamus, telling it what to expect, as there are neurons coming in carrying actual information about what's in front of you. 10 to 1. And this is not just at this thalamic processing station. Vision, as I said, 40% of the human brain, of the human cortex, is visual, has visual function. There are many processing stations. Starting at the first one, this primary visual cortex way back here, there are a whole series of other modules that get progressively more refined in what they're doing and more specialized. In each step, information comes forward in the brain. There's 10 times as many channels going back telling the more the earlier processing stage what's expected what what models are we are we fitting information to today so it's just built into the system that it's mostly modeling 
that we, you know, we do need to have some information about the world. But uh, as you'll see when I talk about what happens when people get injuries to their brain, um, we have more fully formed perceptions without sense organs than we have without models. So one of the uh, so it's not a video camera. Uh, it's really not that at all. It's it's um, it's more like a movie production studio with a whole bunch of people working on it, getting it just right. Um, it's a lot of special <laughs> and a lot of special effects. Um, so one of the examples that shows this in real life is uh, when people lose their vision in childhood and have it restored later on. Fortunately, this doesn't happen a lot, but it occasionally happens. And if a child has normal vision and then can no longer see, usually because of something some opaque happens to the front of the eye, light's not getting to the retina, but the retina's intact, the nerves are intact, if that child, and maybe a few years go by, but if the child gets surgery to clear the eye, uh, when, when the light starts coming in again, it's not like the child says, oh, I can see again. It's like to go, ah, what is that? You know, what's this chaos? It's completely confusing. It's not useful vision at all. But in the matter of a few weeks, uh, maybe months, a child will construct maps and be able to make sense of and, and perceive visually and then should have very normal vision if they were young enough when their vision was restored. If however a child loses vision and it's surgically restored in adulthood it's not it's not as good. Uh, there was and there's a famous patient, uh, a case in the literature, patient M.M. who lost his vision when he was three and a half he was a Canadian. And he got it restored when he was 43. So he had a pretty full life uh, as a blind person. And he was a very high functioning. He was, a, he was an expert skier. He skied in the Canadian Rockies. And uh, he would ski with a companion, who would, uh, a sighted companion, who would call out to him, you know, various hazards. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, skiing is very tactile. You feel the snow. You, know, you feel the slope. Uh, so he, w- he was an expert skier, and he just needed a companion for the, the things that were too far away to feel. <clears throat> when he got his vision restored at age 43, he, he couldn't make sense of anything, but he stuck with it, and over the course of many months uh, and years, really, uh, he began to... Uh, to be able to really have useful vision again. But uh, for the first year or so, if, if he would go skiing, he would just close his eyes because it was, it was too, too risky to ski with his eyes open. He was just confused. Um, and, even, and then his, the final interview that was in this published paper about this guy was when he was two years out from his surgery. Um, and he, then he skied most slopes with his eyes open by then. But when he got on the black diamond slopes, he, he had his friend with him and he closed his eyes because it, it was just too hard. 
uh, to do it with his vision. Uh, and what he said, they quoted him, how he described his progress over the two years. He said, the difference between today and over two years ago when I first had the surgery is that I can better guess at what I'm seeing. What's the same now, two years later, is that I'm still guessing. We really needed those models. Now I have a little sketch in the lower right of the color handout that illustrates, um, tries to, I, I don't know if this is helpful, but it was helpful to me for thinking about it. On the upper one is a situation in a child, and in the lower is this adult who had vision restored. A little too late in life, he didn't have the plasticity to rebuild these mapping circuits. And so this is supposed to be a horizontal version of what was shown vertically just to the left of it. That is, input comes in from the, from the retina as the first lone red arrow, and then into the thalamus as another lone red arrow going to the cortex. And the child whose vision was restored early in life, it regrows all those. It, 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 it not, not exactly grows them, but um, plumps them up, gets them working in a sophisticated way again, these, these descending model-bearing model circuits. And in the adult, it's just sparse. It's not full. And so that you don't have as rely. He's still guessing what he's seeing after a couple of years. Is that clear? There's another way that this is exemplified. Uh, and that is, um, well, it's, it's kind of the opposite. It's when people lose vision late in life rather than early in life. Um, <clears throat> there's a thing called Charles Bonnet syndrome. Uh, and so, as someone who's been a normally sighted person for their whole life, and they're, they're now in their 70s or something, and typically this is a result of glaucoma, slowly progressive loss of vision, uh, and they become functionally blind uh, in their late in life. 10 to 40% of these people will develop this Bonnet syndrome. And I treated a patient who had this uh, at one point in my career, a very sweet music teacher uh, who lived in a, alone in an apartment in Sacramento. And uh, she, she began to experience visual hallucinations. Bonnet syndrome is these hallucinations that occur in people who've lost their vision after a full life of building up models of what to expect to see. So she has very detailed models of the world. She lived in the same part of Sacramento for decades. Um, and she would hallucinate the things that she kind of thought might be there. Uh, and so the reason she came to see me is that it was very, very troubling to her. She had scary hallucinations. And the one that I remember the most, this was some years ago, was uh, she would see trains coming through her apartment. She would see them vividly and it would make her heart pound. Um, they were just like they were there. And uh, she, she lived in downtown Sacramento. They have a light rail system. There were some sounds of rail vehicles maybe in the ambience. Uh, what, for whatever reason, her brain was imposing models onto the, just the little bit of light and dark that she could still see and making it into something very scary. This happens to a large percent of people who lose their vision uh, late in life. The models are fully intact, but the retina is not sending up anything useful. 
not, not enough information is coming from the retina to disconfirm the model. So you just get the model. And it's vivid. It's, it's, um, it's realer than degraded vision. You know, it's like vivid. That's perception. It's these models. A similar thing happens with uh, phantom limb pain. Uh, I won't go into that in detail, but it's, li- it's a, a, the same thing. There's not enough information coming in about what's going on. So if you think there might be uh, some cramping in that missing limb, then you experience it. You know? And sometimes you can treat with phantom limb the pain by constructing another... Uh, an illusion that serves as an antidote to the illusion they're suffering from. And actually, that's kind of what I did with this woman. I mean, I, I, we, she would come every week and we would talk about her hallucinations and she finally got that, it, that this was just like her brain doing what it's designed to do. It was just missing some, uh, the information that would normally limit the model to something realistic. Um, and that, that did help her to see it differently. Although the, the hallucination didn't stop. She just didn't believe in them as much. Um, another way you can see the primacy of these models is through illusions and visual illusions are the ones that are easiest to put in a handout Uh, and on the black and white handout the text one on the third page I've put um, a couple of illusions in the upper left Um, So in in the upper left there are three I mean sorry sorry four three quarter circles they're black three quarter circles they look like Pac-Man icons um, but I'm willing to bet that everyone here sees a white square superimposed on four circles but in fact you know uh, patient MM does not see the white square the guy I told you about before who's got his vision restored at age 43. He sees the four three-quarter black circles. He doesn't build the square. We build the square. And it's, you know, it's got to be a square, right? That's the most logical explanation, that someone put a square on top of some circles. But your mind is the only one that put the square on top of the circles. I, when, when this illusion was made, it was made with three, four three-quarter black circles. And you probably, if you're like me, see some lines connecting the parts of the squares where there's no black circles. You see them? They're not there. (laughs) And maybe some people also see the white square is kind of a little wider than the rest of the paper. I I get that. Of course, I'm very gullible. But um, that's, uh, that's added. You know, your brain imposes the meaning. The meaning is probably that's a square on top of four circles. So let's, let's sharpen that up a little bit. Uh, let's get the special effects team out here and make it really clear that that's what that really is, even though it isn't. And then the one right below that is, we all see that as a, as a three-dimensional kind of cube, right? Um, patient MM just sees a bunch of lines. He doesn't make a cube out of that. We make the cube. <clears throat> to the right of it uh, are these two black circles with what might be a white slot or a white bar 
on the top and the bottom. Now, m most of us, I'm guessing, will see that as a white bar on top of two black circles. Do you see that? Maybe you see some faint lines on ed edging the bar. Do you see that? And maybe it's a little, maybe the bar is a little wider than, than the white of the paper. Now this one, you can sometimes do something else with it, which is, if, if, if you, do you see it as a white bar on top of black circles? Yeah, okay. If, would you imagine, would you, would you <clears throat> mind imagining that those are not black circles, but those are holes in the paper, and the white bar is behind the paper? Can you see the, the lines of the bar going away when you do that? So, you know, you, have, you put a different model, you get a different perception. All right. Um, so people are comfortable usually with these visual illusions. You know, it's just kind of a funny thing. Um, you know, per, cognitive neuroscientists, psychologists who study memory, consider memory to be a form of perception. It's kind of, and in Buddhism, we might say it's perception at the sixth sense gate. It's, it's one of the functions of the sixth sense gate, the mind sense gate. Uh, our memories are like perception of our what we've stored in our brain. And it follows the same rules as perceptions. That is, um, it's governed by models. And it's uh, not accurate. Um, perceptions are not accurate. They're useful. Uh, it's useful to put these models on things. If you can't build the model like patient MM, you miss out on a lot of important things visually. So um, I find sometimes people are a little less comfortable with the idea that their memories are prone to illusion. In fact, it's not... Uh, that, that's how they're designed to work, is to impose meaning on things and not to record what's actually there. Uh, evolution has no interest in you being an archive. It has an interest in your future actions being guided by your best judgment about how to survive. So if you have a, a life experience and you interpret its meaning a certain way, that's what's stored, is what will guide your future behavior, not some kind of uh, reliable archive of what actually happened. <clears throat> There's a little illustration of a of memory that uh, I'd like to ask you to do with me. I'm going to read a list of ten words. I'm not going to really test your memory, but I want you to th imagine you're in an undergraduate psychology class and you're going to be tested on your memory. So you're going to hear these words. As you hear them, do something in your head to, so you can kind of remember them, but don't write them down. Okay, that's cheating. I want to test your memory. Okay. Here are the words. <clears throat> Sorry. Bed. Tired. Rest. Dream. Nap. Yawn. Drowsy. Slumber, blanket, snooze. Now, if this were a real experiment, I'd have you do some arithmetic so that you couldn't rehearse these things. Get your mind busy, you know, count back from 100 by threes until you get to 82. Please, please do that in your mind. Just do something, listen to me. So, so just let those 
words go to the natural memory circuits that in the background put them somewhere not hold them in the foreground that's cheating that's immediate memory that you know I suppose we're not testing that okay so you've done a little mental arithmetic and now um, <clears throat> if this were a real class I'd have you write down all the words you can remember but instead I'll just ask you to try to retrieve from your memory as many of the words as you can remember It's like perception, you know, you're looking back at this record you made. Well, when, when you do this uh, experiment in real life, about half of the undergraduates will include the word sleep on the list. The word sleep was not on the list. <laughs> but the list suggested the word sleep. I mean, the meaning, the theme, the, the semantic overlap of the words would include the word sleep. It would make sense for the word sleep to have been on the list. Um, so we, re- we remember the gist of things with more reliability than the actuality of it. Um, and this is not just, I mean, that's kind of, you know, this is a setup to make it easy to have a memory illusion by the... No, I, not, maybe not the best thing. I, I don't want to do this one after lunch because then people really do fall asleep. <laughs> but, <coughs> um, but this happens with real life memories too, especially memories that are particularly important to us. They get shaped by the meaning that we impose on them. In this case, we imposed the word sleep on that list because it was suggested by the meaning. So um, the way memories get stored, there, there's kind of an immediate store where you can just kind of play the, it's called the phonological loop for, for speech. You can just keep playing those words I said if, if I didn't distract you, you know. Um, so that's different. But then there's this intermediate store, which is in the hippocampus. Uh, and it keeps a fairly detailed record of the events of your life for the last few weeks. But it can't really, it fills up after a while. You can't record the last year of your life in your hippocampus. It has to write that me- those memories to a longer term store that uses less space, that, that's more efficient. It compresses the information the same way that information technologists compress information programmers by eliminating redundancies. Okay? Uh, and it write, the hippocampus writes or orchestrates the writing of a longer-term story that will last your lifetime. The hippocampal memory is sh- weeks, maybe a month at most. But this, in the long-term stories in the cerebral cortex, distributed all over it, um, that lasts a lifetime. Although as the brain decays, you know, with, with very old age, these things degrade. Um, but it writes it more efficiently. It zips these files by finding things that are already in the long-term memory store. Because you've been storing stuff there your, your whole life. Uh, let's say you, you remember something about today's get-together uh, uh, two months from now. You might store it in a way that's, that takes advantage of other times you've been here to the IMC. Because you have memories of that already. So there are redundancies about the setting some of the ideas we talked about, you have other memories of those ideas. There are redundancies there. You're going to re- Each individual experience is stored as a variant on what's already there. 
That way it's very efficient. Now, um, this system is alive. You know, we use our memories to guide our, our behavior because behavior is what keeps us alive. So we use our memories and when we retrieve them, well, let's say um, a month from now you're talking with somebody about something that happened you know, this weekend, this Labor Day weekend. And it was, it was vivid and important and it happened in your life. You tell your good friend about it a month from now. It's vivid and important again when you tell your friend about it. Uh, it's meaningful. It gets stored. Uh, and it's so much like the first time you had that experience. You know, the retrieval and discussion event is very much like the original event. So it gets stored kind of overlapping with the original event because that eliminates a lot of redundancies. Does this make sense? Every time you retrieve and discuss or even quietly think about without talking to anyone an older memory, you rewrite it. It goes back to your hippocampus for a few weeks. It gets written into your cortical store and it changes what's there. We're not keeping old versions. (laughs) We're We're storing stuff in an efficient way in terms of our past life because the purpose is to guide our our life's behaviors and our life's choices. So, very meaningful events, the kinds of things that people talk about in psychotherapy, kinds of things people remember for a long period, like the attacks of September 11th. Um, We remember those things vividly. Um, A year after the attacks on September September, early September of 2002, some psychologists interviewed a bunch of people and asked them, how well do you remember where you were, what you were doing, what you felt, what was going on, who you were with, when you first heard about those attacks? And uh, 97% of Americans said they remembered exactly the details of that experience. It was so vivid and uh, had a lot of Vedana, had a lot of feeling tone, and that really revs up the whole system. So an- another group of psychologists had... Um, knew that these attacks would be a good memory experiment. So they interviewed a bunch of undergraduates within a week of those attacks on September 11th. And they recorded their descriptions of where they were and what they were doing and who they were with and what it meant to them. And then they brought them back uh, exactly a year later and they recorded again their description of where they were, who they were with, what they were doing, what, what time it was, whatever. And the, the agreement between the two narrations was only 60%. But the subjective certainty that they had was quite high. I remember exactly something. <laughs> Just not what actually happened. There was a lot of excitement in psychology about false memories and you can, you know, and poorly trained therapists can implant memories in someone's mind. This, this is true. You get someone retrieving something and then you, you change its meaning. It gets re-instored, re-encoded, restored. This is not uh, a failure of memory. This is how memory works. This is what it's supposed to do. It's not supposed to be an archive. So I, uh, my students really hate hearing this. And I don't know how it is for you, but it, it you know, it's not what we think it is. It's useful. I'm not saying it's not useful. It's super useful. We couldn't get by without it. Let's not reify it as something that's a record of, of exactly what happened. This would save a lot of marital disputes. 
no one really knows what actually happened. We're not built that way. <laughs> okay. So, um, I guess the point I want to make here is that our perceptions have evolved to be useful and our memories also. They have not been shaped by accuracy. They've been shaped by meaningfulness in guiding our behavior, adaptability. Now, you do want them to do that, and they, they, that's the kind of equipment we are given, we're gifted with, useful uh, models of what happened. So, yeah. Some people are uh, tested cognitively and said that they have better memory than other. Yes. So with what you're explaining, how does that, is it that their models are more accurate? Yeah, um, I would not use the word better uh, for their memories. As an evolu- That's what the tests From an evolutionary <laughs> perspective, they, have more, they actually have accurate memories. You're right, there are, it's not common. There are some people whose memories don't focus on meaning. And they just rec- they actually function as an archive. It seems like these people remember exactly what happened and fun- remember like a videotape. Now, is that useful? Is that better? If that were better, wouldn't we all be doing that? You know, I mean, it's a it's a variant. Something has happened so that this winnowing down isn't occurring, and, and I don't know what causes that. But you're right. Some people have an, have a, do have accurate memories. Very, it's very rare. And. Uh, It's amazing they can put all that in there, but they, they do. That is an exception, you're right. It's, yeah. Just a comment, I saw uh, one of these women interviewed on 60 Minutes, and uh, Leslie Stahl asked her whether this was, this eidetic memory was a curse or a blessing, and she said, because I know that I'm going to remember everything, I conduct myself so that I don't have any regret. Yeah, wow. Um, I want to mention the work of a psychologist named uh, Donald Hoffman, who uh, had a book that just came out called uh, The Case Against Reality. I've put the citation to it in the bottom of the first or second page of the text handout, I can't remember, and a few other citations. Um, he, he's, he's one of the most eloquent um, uh, proponents of, of this insight about perception, and he's a cognitive neuroscientist uh, trained at MIT. He's very mathy, he does a lot of modeling, um, and he knows a lot about vision. He studied the visual system, but he's extrapolated this to perception in general, He's on, he's on the faculty at UC Irvine. And he says that uh, evolution favors perceiving what we need for survival, for he calls it fitness, and not accuracy. And he's used evolutionary theory, natural selection theory, in, uh, uh, in computer models. You can create model organisms, virtual organisms in silico, and give them... Uh, capacities to perceive and to re- and to behave, and put them in a virtual environment that they interact with. And you can give them different um, software and hardware, you know. And he's created these evolutionary games where some of the organisms 
have more accurate perceptions and other organisms have no accuracy but only fitness they only see what their particular hardware needs to see to survive or their design needs to survive and he runs these games you know through uh, simulated time it, uh, you know runs them for a few weeks and then it, it, um, in, I think he said in about 95-97% of the time the virtual organisms that have any accuracy built into them become extinct because they're outcompeted by the organisms that uh, devote all of their resources to only what they need to survive. Now this is not my field uh, but he makes a persuasive case and it seems very plausible that we would be shaped mostly uh, by evolution to perceive and remember on a need-to-know basis. Um, he says that um, that doesn't mean our perceptions are, we should just ignore them, that they're, they're useless. They're not useless. Um, you know, you, you know uh, he would say that when you see uh, a bus coming down the street, what you're seeing is just a human species-specific representation of what you need to know, but it's not really what it looks like. On the other hand, he would say, don't step in front of it. <laughs> because it is useful. Our perceptions and memories should be taken seriously to guide our behavior. They should not be taken literally because that's not how they're designed to work. He uses the analogy of a graphical user interface, a GUI, where our perceptions and memories are like a desktop with icons on it. The objects and events and scenes and situations that we see or experience or remember are GUIs. There are icons uh, on a desktop and um, they look the way that would be useful for them to look to a human being. They, they capture the information that's useful to a human being. So a crow would have a different GUI uh, or an octopus would have an even more different GUI. Fairly intelligent animals, but they organize information differently and they have different survival needs. So they're not going to see what we see. Um, and yet, you know, if we're working on our income taxes and we have a little rectangular light blue icon on our desktop, we're not going to pretend it's meaningless. We're not going to drag it in the trash because then we would lose access to the information. It's meaningful. We have to relate to it uh, in a sensible way or we're going to be hurt. We're going to be hurt. We won't do well, but it's ultimately more of just a GUI. So I just want to expose you to that extreme way of thinking about our perceptions. Um, there are a couple of the things I've said so far probably apply to all animals, but there are a couple of things that humans do kind of differently. Um, and one, the main thing is that we develop much higher level models of the world than other animals. Um, very sophisticated models. And this allows us to have you know, science and literature and architecture and the Dharma. Um, uh, and uh, it's made us very successful in terms of our short-term survival. Uh, but we also put great faith in these narratives uh, and these stories and these models. And sometimes it gets us into trouble, it blinds us to other things that are essential for our, our well-being. 
<clears throat> and you can see this in split brain patients. There was some discussion about the left and right hemispheres. Um, on the color handout, the second page of the color handout. Oh, I, for, I forgot a couple of things. Second page has my patient with 1A syndrome seeing the trains. And it also has an, an illusion that I just wanted to point out to you. It's a nice one. Um, which orange circle is bigger, the one in the lower left or the one in the upper right? Now, I wouldn't ask you this if they weren't exactly the same, but don't you really feel like getting out a ruler? Because they really look bigger. But, you know, when it's in context, in the upper right, the orange is the big one. Large is one of its qualities. In the lower left, small is one of its qualities. And your perceptual system just fuses that together with what you see. And it's very hard for me to make, make my eyes see those as the same size that they are. Anyway, just below that is um, uh, an illustration from an experiment that's been done many times in people with uh, a split brain uh, situation. And this is done as a treatment for certain types of ep epilepsy that are so severe, people really cannot function. The seizures spread to both hemispheres and they can't be stopped by existing medications. This was more common before we had more medications in the past, but there are many people with this treatment, this surgical treatment, a separation of the white matter tracks that allow the two cerebral hemispheres to communicate efficiently with each other, or at all with each other. That helps with the seizures, but it produces some unusual things. Now, these people don't seem that unusual, but one of the things that shows up is um, now the non-dominant hemisphere, which for most right-handed, which for right-handed people is on the right, operates their left hand, is not the language. It's the non-language hemisphere, non-dominant. The left hemisphere operates the right. It, it's local, it can speak. It's eloquent. It's fluent in language. Now, the right hemisphere, the non-dominant, can read single words. Simple language uh, it can comprehend. Can't talk normally. There are some exceptions to this. Most people have rudimentary language skills in that hemisphere. So in this experiment, the woman with the split brain surgery is looking at a screen. She's being asked to focus on a little dot in the center of the screen. By focusing there, only one hemisphere will see the stuff on the left and the other hemisphere will see the stuff on the right, as long as you keep your eyes straight forward, because that's the way the visual tracks map into the brain. They, they split. So her right hemisphere is seeing the word walk, and it can read single words. So she gets up, and she starts to walk. And so the experimenter says something like, why'd you get up or where are you going? And her, both hemispheres hear that. Only the left, the dominant, is capable of really answering. It doesn't know why she got up. But it makes something up. Um, ah, I think I want to get a soda. Or I feel like stretching my legs. Now, you've probably had the experience of someone asking you a question you're not sure you can remember the answer or you're not sure you know the answer and there's some hesitation or there's a feeling of uncertainty. When these split brain patients, when their left hemispheres are re answering these questions, there's no hesitation. There's no uncertainty. There's no doubt. The confidence is complete. Uh, it's completely made up, un undoubted answer. They have great confidence in this narrative that they construct. Uh, now normally this uh,
confabulating hemisphere is held in check by the right hemisphere. You know, there's, there's a back and forth. They have to kind of agree. Uh, but when that break is not there, the left hemisphere will just construct a, a meaningful model. What's the most likely explanation? And then that's real for the left hemisphere. There's no sense of, you know, not so sure, but probably this. It's just like, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Um, you, and it's not just in people who've separated their hemispheres. Uh, the left hemisphere is normally dominant for many things. Um, and so in, in ordinary folks like you and me, um, you can see this left hemisphere dominance um, diluting you, uh, diluting ourselves in other ways. And one of them is called the pattern matching experiment. And uh, I've illustrated it visually on the black and white handouts, third page, uh, upper right, this one here. There's two panels, upper panel and a lower panel, with the, um, just showing uh, a computer screen that's divided in left and right halves. So you put a person or a college undergraduate, you know, uh, usually, in front of a computer screen and that has a line in the middle, and you tell them, I'm going to present a target either on the left side or the right side of this screen. And if you can guess which side it's going to show up on, you get points or money or some thing, some reward. And this experiment can also be done with animals, and you give them food. Uh, pigeons have done this experiment, uh, various birds, rodents, monkeys... It's an easy experiment. You, now, they don't know what side the target's going to come up on, and typically the experimenter has set it up so that randomly the target appears on one side 70% of the time, unpredictably, but 70% over time and 30% on the other. And then when you do this experiment in real life, you make sure that half the time the more common one was on the left and half the time the more common one was on the right. So college undergraduates figure this out after 15 or so uh, presentations of just randomly guessing, they realize it's kind of 70, 30, you know, 15, 20, 25 trials. And pretty soon they all are guessing 70% of the time they're guessing on the more common side and 30% of the time they're guessing on the less common side. They really match the frequency with great accuracy. They model what's going on and they use that model to guide their behavior so they get rewards. Now, let me just finish. Um, now, if you do this with an animal... Uh, any species of animal that's been studied, they watch it for a few times and then they start guessing the more common side 100% of the time. They have a different relationship with the model. You know, Either they don't perceive it or they don't believe in it. But they're right 70% of the time, whereas the undergraduates are only right 58% of the time. Because <laughs> if you guess you know, 70% of the time on the most common side and 30%, it's random, you're going to miss more. You don't get it, you don't do as well. Now, if you do this experiment in a person who's had the split brain surgery, this is what the left hemisphere is doing. The left hemisphere guesses 70-30. The right hemisphere is just as smart as a monkey. It will just guess the common side every time. It's pragmatic. Um, you know, it has, a, it has an intuitive feel for the right way to do this task. Whereas the left hemisphere sees a pattern and, and it loves patterns. <laughs> and it builds them, it trusts them, and it lives in them. And it uses them to guide its, its behavior. So we, we are, this is the downside. Now these patterns are great. I mean, this gives us quantum mechanics and, uh, you know, 
brain surgery and other great accomplishments, but um, it's good to be aware of it and realize that it has a tendency to dominate our life. Let's see. See, I guess what I want to say is that uh, I mean, these narratives and models, uh, you know, in as a practicing psychiatrist, it, it's this belief in models and narratives that have been perceived, often erroneously, about the world. It's this uncritical belief in a model that causes so much suffering. And so much of psychotherapy is helping people see the model that they're using and learn to doubt it a little bit, you know, or to question it, to, to investigate it. You know, in Buddhism, the, the recommendation is to investigate our experience. And, and in particular, the left hemisphere, which tends to be dominant, its vocabulary is very categorical and abstract, and it can miss a lot of messy details about what's actually happening uh, in our experience. So I think I'll stop there and see if you guys have some questions before we break. Thank, thank you. Um, in the experiment you just described, a 70-30 split, there's the guess, which side, but what do they say about the guess? Do they actually perceive and understand that there's, they believe there's a split? Or do they, you know, do their phys- physical system have a different answer than their verbal system? Is the way I'm asking. Well, you mean the, the undergraduates, you mean? <coughs> The, 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 the human beings who did the experiment. Yes. Yeah, they, <clears throat> most of them reported they had detected the pattern and they, and they just matched it in their guesses. That, that is, that it was, that they didn't want to guess all the time on one side because it wasn't always there. You know, they, yeah. they think categorically. Uh, okay. Yeah, they, a few of them just, you know, uh, and people varied. You know, they were, everyone yeah. wasn't the same, but on average it was very close to 70%. So, so they were actually able to guess that it was around a 70 Yes, so oh yeah, and it's pretty evident. You know, if you do this experiment, you, go, you get a feel for the quantitative split. Okay. Yeah, they perceived the pattern, and they reported it. Thank you. Um, could you kind of bring this perception module that you were describing back to Buddhism and the practice. So like how, yeah. you know, what do we do that makes our perceptive ability better or when we practice? Well, um, I guess I'm not saying that this, this is a problem with our perceptions. This is how it's supposed to work. I, and I think that the, for me, the, the way Buddhism, the teachings of the Dharma relate to this is that we, take, we tend to take our perceptions literally but they d- that's not what they're for. And, and one of the things we do is we reify things. We think they're, they have substance to them. In the initial sutta, the foam sutta, the teaching from the Buddha was, look at it closely, you'll see. It's actually more fluid. You know? uh, and I think it, you know, it does probably involve breaking up the left hemisphere monopoly on our, on our perceptions to see the fluidity. Uh, and it's great that we recognize patterns. Just see it as recognizing patterns, not the way things are, you know, not reifying it, not living in it wholeheartedly. You just use it, notice it, see, see that it's how it is and what it's for. 
don't make it more than that. In uh, Bonnet syndrome, uh, where the real life uh, perception is cut off and the brain substitutes uh, ideas and things, is that considered a partial contribution to dreaming and why it happens? Well, I think it's similar to dreaming in one sense because your eyes are closed when you're dreaming, but you have these vivid experiences. <coughs> um, and uh, yeah, th- that's just our models. So I, I think, yeah, dreaming is another example of you don't really need sense organs to have perceptions. Uh, now, in an adult or even a child, dreams or based on, one would think, the perceptions they've already had, you know, they're sort of a, a memory of perceptions. There's an interesting thing about dreams, which I'll just mention briefly, which is that um, REM sleep, dreaming sleep, uh, probably has a role in the development of the brain in utero, in before birth. So uh, mammalian infants and... Uh, all mammals dream. Uh, in utero, uh, they spend about 90% of the time in REM sleep. If you look at their brain waves, it's REM sleep. Their eyes are moving, just like, a, like a, an adult in REM sleep. And we, we spend, you know, like 5% of our time in REM sleep. Or, you know, it's a small percent of our 24-hour day. An unborn child, 90%. You know, it's a huge part of what it's doing. And the model that I find most compelling is that the visual system is practicing seeing in utero. That we're born with a species-specific set template of basic images that we practice on. And then when we come out, we start to learn from what's in the environment. But newborn humans will, will foveate, will fixate another human face. They won't look at you know, clocks or smartphones. They haven't been practicing on those templates, but they recognize a face. They recognize it because they've practiced seeing it already. So there's a certain set of things, a breast, a, f- a face, that they know how to visually engage with at birth. So that's the model training itself up in utero. Are you familiar with the uh, deep dream uh, project that, I don't know, was about two years ago or so, where they took a neural net that was trained for recognizing sort of animals or something like that and kind of ran it in reverse so that it was kind of feeding back into itself and generating uh, imagery that looked like hallucinations maybe of animals. No, that's pretty cool. It's pretty interesting (laughs) in uh, the... uh, The uh, the chart you had with the ten black arrows and one red arrow sort of reminded me of that, and I was just wondering if if you knew of anyone who had kind of applied that for different sorts of perceptions. That seems like a fruitful avenue, but I'm not up to date on that work. There is a perception model that has a kind of feedback back up and down, but it's it's not very. Uh, I work in AI, so I'm ah. kind of familiar. Uh-huh. Yeah, but there's something like that. Um, 
I'm perplexed. How does a, a child sees faces in utero? Right, not with its eyes. Um, although it learns to move its eyes according to the movie that's playing in its visual system. So, yeah, no, it's a good question. How does that happen? <laughs> um, but I guess one of the things I'm saying is our, our internal models are the greater part of our perceptions. And in fact, now it's, you know, you can't, no one can prove that the child is having imagery. But the evidence it would be that would be the most parsimonious explanation of the fact that so much time is spent in this dream state while the brain's growing and that when they come out they can recognize some stuff whereas other stuff it takes them a while to learn to recognize because they haven't practiced with it does that make sense so uh, what they're seeing you know is what we're seeing um, what we're seeing is not what's out there it's this movie that we make based on what's coming into our eyes but most of the work is the movie studio. <clears throat> and so the kid has a mo- the, the unborn child has a growing movie studio inside and some content. Um. I have two related questions. Um, one is, given these uh, kind of hardwired uh, deceptions, right? The illusion, we're susceptible to illusions because that's how our perceptions um, yeah. work. How does that inform the limits of Vipassana or maybe inform the practice of Vipassana itself? And number two, relatedly, are there like uh, illusions like equivalent to the visual ones that we can like uh, use to kind of expose uh, our delusions in our, in, our, in our minds? Kind of like maybe that's what like <laughs> Zen parables are supposed to be, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, the first question is a good one. Uh, you know, our models are not accurate. So, you know, in Vipassana, we're trying to have insight into the nature of experience. And I, I think, really, those, this is the middle way. Um, all the models we generate will not be right. <laughs> I think. I think this is true. But that is kind of a meta-model. That, uh, that frees us from uh, identifying with them or overvaluing them. It helps free us from overvaluing our models and getting into fights about them, um, that sort of thing. Um, the insights are useful in, in this practice because uh, right, they help lead to right view, they help lead to a transformation of intention. So I think it's kind of parallel to what happens biologically. You know, our perceptions are useful because of what they help us decide to do. Our insights in this practice are useful because of how it transformed, transforms how we are in the world. But I think every model we have will always be just a model. I guess the question is, do we have a model of our awareness? Ah. Type of thing, right? Like, Yeah. Well, you might be interested in the Hoffman book because he uh, tries to answer that question. That, that is really, um, a hard, that's a hard question, yeah. You, I don't think there's a, a particularly well-performing model of awareness yet in, the sci- in science anyway. I'm coming in late, so excuse me if you've already gone over this, but I wonder, uh, 
you know, I, what, your, what the research says about the phenomenon of, you know, better sleep on it. Um, oh, I, yeah. I certainly have this experience of, like as a reporter. I, I sometimes I go out and interview a bunch of people on a topic and I kind of pursue a story and then I feel tired. And sometimes I had the experience of early in the morning before my alarm goes off, a story starts writing itself in my head and I've got to get up and start writing it. So I wonder what it, sleep on it means about making decisions. Yeah, no, it's exactly those things. Um, you know, I mentioned before about how the short-term hippocampal memory store gets translated into this long-term cortical memory store uh, over a course of a few weeks. And a lot of that happens while we're sleeping. And, um, and so this uh, uh, identification and emphasis, identification of the meaning of experiences and then emphasizing that meaning in terms of the long-term memories that we, that we keep uh, that happens during sleep, uh, and so, like the memory illusion that I <clears throat> mentioned with the word "sleep" wasn't really in the list. If you do that experiment and let eight hours go by before you ask them to write the words down, and half the group has slept, and the other half has not slept, um, the memory illusion is stronger in the people who've slept because the the memory is more processed; it's more boiled down to its meaning. So, uh, memory illusions are, get stronger <laughs> after we sleep on it. But also the meaning of something, the gist of something, the patterns that we recognize, the sense we make of it is heightened after we've slept on it. Yes? I hear what you're saying, that the, the goal is not necessarily to increase the accuracy of the perception it's more to question the model entirely but at the same time there's there's times when it's very very useful to have a more accurate memory like in court cases for example is it is it is there a way to to reduce the degradation of the memory to increase the accuracy over time sooner the better <laughs> because it okay. gets processed into this gist form um, you can rely, I mean, if, if, a, if you need to be a witness about something where what's important is the gist, that's, then you're in good shape. And so, I, you know, I've thought about this because it's, you know, it is unfortunate that eyewitness testimony is so, un, so useless. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if you, were, if, if you were to ask somebody whether their brother or somebody they know really well where the gist the identity of the person is part of the gist. They're not going to be wrong about that. You know, did, did your brother shoot that person? You know, they're, they're, they're not going to get that wrong. But is it, did you pick that guy out of a lineup? Good luck. You know, unless you get him right away. That, that's my take on it. There are people who know more about this so than I do. So just time, write it down, something like that? Yeah, and, and when you elicit the memory, don't contaminate it with other things that might frame the meaning one way or another. Because it's, it's really a, mem- a meaning-making system, not a memory-making system. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay. Great. So, uh, our lunch and uh, our 